Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. The bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Democrats are coming unhinged, my friends. Or maybe they've been unhinged all along and we're just seeing it now. But what what a day. I thought maybe we'd have the opportunity to uh, just go off into our weekends relatively quietly i mentioned you yesterday here on the show by the way team buck welcome to the freedom hub uh i mentioned yesterday on the show that we hadn't had a big russia bombshell this week there hadn't been some major revelation about russia and putin and trump oh my and and sure enough i can't even go off in my weekend without reading something washington post big story this morning about obama and his Secret struggle to punish Russia for Putin's election assault. Here's the here's the single biggest takeaway from that whole article. Obama didn't really think it mattered quite as much as maybe he would have otherwise. If you believe everything else in the piece, which I don't, frankly, but even if you do, if you believe that everything written about how they were so worried and there was Russia and it was hacking and they're trying to throw the election, they wanted Trump to win, if you believe all of that, it couldn't have been that bad because the president of the United States, who's getting all this information and, ooh, it's all so you know, secretive and behind closed doors and everything. And now, of course, we're reading all about it on the front page of the biggest newspapers in the country. Whether it's true or not, I don't know, but we're reading about it. And the president didn't do all that much because he kind of figured that Hillary was going to win anyway. And, you know, don't don't make any waves Hillary's going to win. She can handle it how she wants to. But the the commander-in-chief, when faced with a national security threat, should not be making decisions that balance his response to that national security threat. Again, if we're going to assume that everything in this Washington Post piece is true, should not be taking into account, well, how will this affect Hillary's poll numbers? But you read the piece, you'll see. That's, that's, That's what happened. I mean, Obama... Could have responded more forcefully, could have come out and said more to the American people, but then it would have looked bad, been difficult for Hillary maybe. Hillary was going to win. It was all fine. It was all fine. You see, that's the problem. Democrats believed all along. They're the ones who were really deluded about this. They believed that Hillary was just going to win. It was a sure thing. All the contraindications, all the the data to the contrary uh, didn't mean anything. It was, they really did believe it was inevitable that Hillary would be the next president and that we would have eight years of Clinton and that that would continue on with the Obama legacy. And we're really heading towards a one party state, a Democrat socialist country and the Republican Party uh, would be some quaint anachronism, uh, kind of similar to where the libertarians are today with, you know, hey, we have ideas. Listen to us. And everyone's like, yeah, that's cute. That would have been the Republican Party of the future. I mean, now. That, of course, is completely detached from reality. You look at Republicans having control in the House and the Senate and 
state houses and governorships, and they're in the strongest position they've been in in like 100 years. But nonetheless, they believe that Hillary, that, that the presidency had consolidated so much power under Obama and before Obama, let's be honest, but had been in a process of consolidation that Hillary would continue. And between Hillary and the judges and the Supreme Court and everything else, they would progressive utopia was just waiting over the horizon. But nope. Donald came along and they just they just can't handle it. They're they're just having a tough time with it still. It, it hasn't yet gone away. I, I I remarked on it yesterday. There was not a big Russia story and just just in time for the weekend. Slow you'll notice by the way that this sort of fits a pattern, doesn't it? Just in time for the weekend, big story drops the Washington Post. This will set the you think, "Well, Buck, don't you usually release No, no, no. If you release it Friday morning and it's a political story, that people want to talk about, then they can use what they have. First of all, that dominates the news cycle on Friday, as we see this story has today. All the pundits, the punditocracy back and forth on this dominates the news cycle. And then it sets the agenda. It's really the Washington Post here handing the talking points to all the Sunday political shows, which I gotta be honest with you, I don't watch because I got other stuff to do on Sunday, but I usually catch them on Monday morning and I read the transcripts or look at clips of them. Um, but that and, and those Sunday shows set the agenda to start off the week, right? So, so you see that there's there's thought put into all of this. There's there's a mechanism in place. It also uh, timing wise is convenient for stopping the discussion about Republicans moving forward on Trump's agenda. You had Trump's very well received, at least by his base and by his supporters, speech uh, day before yesterday in Iowa. So now we get this story about how Obama had all this information about the Russia hacking stuff. And uh, sure enough, um, sure enough, he was making some political discussions or political decisions rather about this. So you have that happening here. But that's not even I started off today saying that uh, Democrats are a bit unhinged right now, Um, but it gets worse, or there's much worse stuff out there. Uh, you see today, um, in response to the Republican Senate health care bill, which has not even passed yet, may not pass. There are a few holdouts. Uh, we've invited Senator Rand Paul on the show. We'll see if maybe he wants to join sometime early next week and uh, hang out and talk to us about what's going on. But the Democrat talking points about this are, are are so dishonest and so disingenuous, just so deceitful, full of lies. And also uh, something that it's beyond hyperbole because hyperbole is when you say something that's exaggerated, but it's to, it's to make a point, but it's understood that it's exaggerated. They're really trying to sell people on the exaggeration, which I mean, it's a falsehood, right? They're actually just lying to people. And in in a hysterical fashion, um, you have Hillary from her official Twitter account today. Hello, America, I'm back. Uh, forget death panels, she tweets out. Forget death panels. If Republicans pass this bill, they're the death party. Now, for a political party whose most sacred single political agenda item is abortion for Hillary to even go in this direction is just an an affront to language 
truth, decency, uh, virtue, everything that is that is good in life. Uh, this is an affront. Um, this is uh, astonishing. Forget death panels. If Republicans pass this bill, they're the death party. No, the Democrats are the death party. We know that. Uh, we've known that for a long time. Democrats find ways to excuse death in any number of uh, situations, but most notably, of course, in, in abortion. Um, and she was referring, I should note, to uh, some research study that says the Senate bill could result in 18,000 to 28,000 deaths in 2026. How the, how the, 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 the blankety blank, uh, can they have any idea that the Senate bill that hasn't even been passed yet in the Senate, never mind in the House, never mind signed by the president, but, but putting all that aside, assume that it all goes through as is right now. A, the Senate bill would result in tens of thousands of deaths in 2026? How the heck could they know that? W what extrapolation, what data crunching are they doing here that would ever give them such a window into the future? You, you don't have to be a statistician. You don't have to be a scientist, a mathematician. You don't even have to be smart to see how dumb this is. In fact... I think smart to dumb people across the board, as long as they haven't been politically brainwashed, as long as they have not just taken in all of this Democrat propaganda, would see this kind of a study and say, you have, you have no idea. What, what does this even mean? Tens of thousands of people will die. In, in, in 10 years, tens of thousands of people may die because of this bill. Uh, the, the, I, I don't even want to know what, what uh, assumptions and and baked-in feces this would have to deal with, uh, half-baked feces this would have to deal with uh, in order to get to this number. But you see, it's really not about data. Opposition to the health care bill, whether it's from Elizabeth Warren, who says, by the way, that the Senate has blood on its hands. Given what's happened recently in this country, which media it's like it never happened really you know the very little coverage of that whole attempted mass assassination of republicans thing that just happened in this country but uh you know you you really do get the sense that the uh, bombing of an abortion clinic decades ago is much more on, the, on at the forefront of the minds of the media than say an attempted mass assassination of republican congressmen that like just happened we still have steve scalise thank god making his recovery and we have Democrats that are using this language, uh, and, and it's all to the purpose of just smearing the other side. I mean, think about this. The worst stuff that they can really say about this is the Medicaid, about the health care bill, are the, uh, is the rollback over time of Medicaid expansion that has occurred. Two things to note here. First of all, it's an expansion that just happened in recent years, so... It's not it's not like this has always been the case and people are all of a sudden, you know, we're going to be living in this different country because we don't have more health care welfare given out. Um, and by the way, we do stop at some point. Right. So there are some people that maybe would want Medicaid and don't get it. They don't qualify. So the Obama administration was heartless because it was cutting people off. Right. I mean, you just look at. Uh, the the game that they play here is that as long as there's someone out there who wants free health care, who's not getting it, who. Uh, 
has to meet a certain income threshold or doesn't meet that threshold, you could say that they're cutting people off from health care. They don't care about people with cancer, people with, with terrible diseases. You know, that, that that political party doesn't care about them. I mean, this is the worst kind of demagoguery from the Democrats. This is the demagoguery of saying things one knows to be untrue to people one assumes to be pretty dumb. Which is what the Democrats are doing. The death party, Hillary says. That's a quote. The death party. Uh, Elizabeth Warren says they have blood on their hands. Uh, We could just go down the line here and see any number of Democrats um, and the way that they talk about this. It's it's really quite clear, isn't it, that their opposition to the Republican reform of health care is not that care will necessarily just be more expensive, that less people will have it, that it's that Republicans are evil and want people to die don't care about people dying and are making people die by their actions. That is the, the death party, Hillary says. Blood on their hands, Elizabeth Warren says. This is just in the last 24 hours. You know, when you say that enough, and when people who are the have the biggest megaphones and, shockingly enough, are among the most widely known and respected people in a society, which certainly among Democrats, Hillary, Elizabeth Warren, they're at the very top of the list, When they accuse their political opponents of wishing death, in fact, of manifesting death, of causing death for the weak, the powerless, the elderly, children, the sick, there will be a reaction to that. Yeah, in the short term, they're just doing this because it's effective politics, but they've learned nothing since that shooting that occurred in Alexandria, days, mere days ago. They've they've learned nothing. They're not changing their rhetoric. They're dialing the rhetoric up. They're making it even more inflammatory. And they they have the gall. I mean, they have the temerity. They have the, the chutzpah to turn around and say that we need a more civil discourse. Oh? We're talking about phased out Medicaid changes while also giving people who don't qualify for Medicaid tax credits to buy better insurance than they can get right now on the individual market in a few years. That is, quote, the death party. That's blood on their hands. People who say these things are not just lying. They're immoral and they're doing real harm to the country. And the Democrats should be ashamed. But people like Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren are not capable They are not capable of shame. I haven't even gotten to the crazy stuff that, like, a bunch of other people have said today. So strap in, team. we got a lot more. I'll be right back. Be accused of uh, twisting Elizabeth Warren's words, so I got a little fired up there. I want to make sure that I say it exactly as I said, blood on their hands. Well, that's kind of true. What she said is, I've or wrote is I've read the Republican health care bill. This is blood money. They're paying for tax cuts with American lives. That's that's actually maybe worse. <laughs> I think you make the argument that that's even worse than what I had said with the blood on their hands. I mean, also blood money. I mean, you know, there's you, you, if you're transferring the money and it's blood money, you know, you're going to get blood on your hands. But uh, paying for tax cuts with American lives. That's what they 
That's what they're saying. Um, so that's at the very top. That's the most the the most uh, revered Democrats use this language, you know, regularly, and it's considered. It somehow is considered okay. You know, it's it's supposed to be no big deal, no problem. Um, and and then you get into some of the other stuff. It's by the way, I, I will speak to you about how Loretta Lynch. May find herself uh, on the receiving end of some questions from the Senate Judiciary Committee soon. We'll get into that, which I said, I mean, the special counsel better be looking into that. Uh, If they're not, then the whole thing's a joke, although I I think the whole thing's kind of a joke anyway. Not a joke as in ha-ha, a joke as in it's all political, it's um, it's not fair, it's not going to be fair, and... Uh, I think Trump's comments, which I'll get to in a little bit about Comey and Mueller, are totally uh, legitimate and, yeah. But as if we didn't, as if the political climate was not heated enough right now, I mentioned yesterday uh, we had on actually a gentleman from the Free Beacon talking about the 30 Republican congressmen that have been attacked or threatened in the last month or two. You have a Democratic official who was caught on tape now saying that he was, he was quote, glad Scalise was shot. So now you have to ask yourself, do, do you think that, that that sentiment expressed by this one, uh, this one Democrat out in Nebraska, Nebraska Democrat, Democratic Party official who's been, uh, who's been booted after a, an audio recording has surfaced of him saying this, um, you think he's the only Democrat out there who not only thinks that, but probably says it to people around him that more or less the Republicans who were getting shot at. Uh, I think there are Democrats out there who believe the Republicans who got shot at, you know, uh, kind of had it coming at some level. Well, we, we heard Scott Pelley say that it was this was this self-inflicted was a question that he asked. You had people. Uh, on with TV platforms, right? Who are supposed to be careful and thoughtful about what they say? We know they're not, but they so they're supposed supposed to be pointing out that Steve Scalise's record, you know, is still something we should be talking about, and uh, and and pointing at the at the backgrounds of the the brave Capitol police officers who saved the lives of those congressmen, and saying, well, there's some there's some discussion that has to be had here about the politics of those who were saved, and I mean, it's just uh, you know, th- there was no. Common decency from a lot of people on the left after this whole thing happened. And uh, I haven't even gotten into what, you know, what, what, do we, I don't know, do we care what, what Johnny Depp says? I mean, he's just, guy's, a, guy's an idiot. Um, I don't know. I, I guess people, people care. He's apologized for his, uh, what he said about Trump. He, uh, he said, well, we have the audio. You know, maybe I'll play the audio on this side of the break. Wait, I almost forgot. It's Action Movie Quote Friday. Hit it, DJ. Action. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Movie. Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Quote free your mind. Fridays. Action movie quote Fridays. It is Friday, so that means it's action movie quote Friday. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. Lines are open, team. We are uh, going to talk more about all the, all the things, all the stuff that is happening. And later on in the show, I'll even... Go into a monologue about Thucydides. The 
the Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. Lines are lit. Let's take them. Lee in Pennsylvania, WWVA. What's up, Lee? Yes, sir. How you doing, Buck? I'm good, sir. Thank you for calling in. Yeah, the reason I called, you know, I'm hearing all this stuff from the uh, Democrats about uh, Republicans, you know, being these the death squads and all this. But uh, when Obamacare rolled around, my premiums doubled, and then within a few months, uh, my policy, my wife's policies, were both terminated. So we were one of the millions without any insurance. But uh, nobody ever ever really said anything about Obama and all that happening, you know? Oh, yeah, no, people lost health care plans under Obama, for sure. And and people have yeah. been and people have been denied. They've been denied the care they needed under Obamacare plans. Uh, they've been unable to pay for uh, health care they needed under Obamacare plans. I mean, we're being sold fairy tales about about what the afford the so-called Affordable Care Act really has done. Everyone I know, Lee, who has been affected by Obamacare, including Democrats who live in Brooklyn, which is like a very hip communist stronghold here in New York City, one of the five boroughs, uh, they—I know you know that because you're in Pennsylvania, but some other people might not know Brooklyn well. uh, But they agree that it's terrible. They're like, my plan is garbage. I pay a lot of money, and if I get sick, I have to pay a lot more money before I get any level of coverage. The doctor network is tiny, and— you know, the when you get really sick, by the way, being able to pick the doctor you want to see is a very important consumer choice. I mean, I can tell you from having had my own oh, health yeah. challenges in the past, people seem to think like, oh, just go see any old doctor and like whatever they pay, you know, whatever you can get covered is what you what you should do. No, that actually, you know, you, you look at the level of uh, secondary or second opinions and differential diagnosis, meaning that when someone goes to a doctor for a, a health problem that can't be resolved right away or can't be identified right away, there's a tremendous variation of what the second doctor, oftentimes a specialist, will say versus another specialist, right? So it matters. Choice matters. What doctor you see matters. Obamacare is terrible on all those fronts, but people act like it's good. Oh, yeah. No, nah, it's great, yeah, man. Exactly. And, and uh, when we when we did sign up for the Obamacare uh my wife had to be on a different policy than I was because she had a pre-existing condition. And I, I thought that was, uh, well, kind of like you can keep your doctor, you can all that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, it was just a total disaster. By the way, that was one of the, that was one of the great, and I don't mean great as in good, but one of, one of the, the most massive political lies of this generation is if you like your plan, you can keep your plan because without that, and Lee, thank you for calling in shields high. Without people believing that they would be able to keep their doctor and keep their plan with what Obama, with what Obama was was passing or you know getting done with the Senate and the, and the House, uh, there might have been an, there just might have been enough opposition to make enough Democrats balk uh, so that they wouldn't go forward with it. But when you say, when you tell people, don't worry, you keep your plan, you keep your doctor, everything's going to stay fine, it's just going to be better. They go, all right, you know, nah, it's not. That's not. That can't be that bad. And it was a lie. He knew it was a lie. This is also why when people say, "Oh, Trump's a liar," look, he lied about his crowd size. He lied. About, you know, there's like, uh, there's there's little lies and there's big lies. Right? There's there's lies about stuff that no one really cares about, 
And, you know, Trump saying that he's the greatest, uh, I don't know, the the greatest at, at anything, you know, the greatest restaurateur, the greatest uh, builder in history. I don't know, whatever you want to say. I don't really care. Obama telling the American people, telling me and uh, telling all of us that what the, what the massive health care law that he's passing will do uh, won't affect your plans. That's that matters. Right. Remember, I talked to you about there's the stuff that's intellectually interesting and, and I like to learn things with you here in the Freedom Hunt and share them and, and exchange ideas. And some of that is just, you know, we like to be informed. We like to talk about what's of interest. And, and uh, there's philosophy and there's uh, political theory. And these are areas. We, and then there's a stuff where I'm like, look, this is going to be a problem for you, you know, and healthcare falls, healthcare taxes. I mean, you know, we, we can sit here and I, and I love talking about foreign policy, but reality of foreign policy is that most pundits like to talk about it because they get to sound fancy and everyone's allowed to have their opinion. And by the time, if you are wrong, it's obvious you're wrong. So much time has usually passed that you can say that something else changed. And so no one's ever really wrong on foreign policy. You know, you get to sound smart. No one's ever really wrong. You know, that, that's that's why they like it so much. Um, I mean, I think people are wrong, but they won't admit it. Jay in West Virginia, WWVA. What's up, Jay? Jay, we lost Jay. Makes me sad. Jay got Jay. Uh, Jay bounced on us. Um, let's take Patty in Mississippi. WBUV. Hey, Patty. Hey, back shield high. Shield high. Hey, um, hey, I, I spoke to you last week, just after the, the incident in the ballpark, and talking about the rhetoric, you know, the, the left was using in general that would potentially drive people to do things. But part, it's, all this kind of comes together. I think what we have here is an establishment problem, and establishment meaning that the Republicans are are just as much a part of it as the left is. Because hmm. look, you know this debacle that's gone. You're going to have to sell me on this one, Patty. Yeah. But go ahead. Okay. All right. Let, let me talk you through it. Basically, you know we've got this Obamacare light that they're doing now because even after they told us for seven years that they were going to fix it, let's take a step back. Let's look at the IRS targeting of conservative groups. Had the shoe been on the other foot, would that have gone and just gone away and nobody got brought up on charges if a Republican administration had put set the IRS out on liberal or leftist groups that you know wanted to join or make you know do liberal clubs or whatever? Patty, no, let me I, can I can I interject something? Because I I, I, I I think you're making sure. a very important point. Um, what do we think is more likely to affect the outcome of a national election? A Russian hacker getting into a couple of email accounts of, of people associated with the Democratic National Committee or your own government engaged in a verified and uh, undisputed targeted campaign of political suppression using the most frightening and intrusive agency of the federal government, short of maybe the Department of Justice, but the IRS, to do it. What is more likely to affect the outcome of an election, IRS targeting or Russian hacking? If you ask most reporters today, I'm sure they'd say, oh, the Russian hacking, which is crazy. The IRS people that were involved in this, Lois Lerner and the rest of them, they were going after the Tea Party and patriot groups, which, of course, has a close correlation with people with patriot in their name, close correlation with with Tea Party groups, because the Tea Party had just been a part of a massive 
wave election in 2010. So, you know, the the political efficacy of the Tea Party in 2010 had already been established. Now it's 2012. They're going into the election, Obama versus Romney. And, oh, in that year you have uh, grassroots uh, groups that are being targeted by the IRS. And and we're supposed to believe that 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 had, you know, no no effect, no effect whatsoever. Exactly. And the thing is that you have people like, you know, Mitch McConnell, I'm I'm brown, you know, I'm going to call him out. They did nothing they did absolutely they should have been running around washington with their hair on fire over that one that is like your people are being set upon by the by the the strong arm of the government and they were silent they just let those oh yeah oh we're gonna have all these you know uh hearings and this and that and lois lerner retired gets her great little package and nothing ever happened oh yeah no there was zero there was zero accountability zero accountability for that and it's and look at this but the same thing is going on with trump if you ask me, look, I was not a Trump supporter. I was Ted Cruz all the way, but hey, he's in. And I, you know, I, now I'm more like just seeing this, this disaster of the media, what they're doing to him. But the the thing is, you don't have the establishment Republicans. Nobody is, no one is, is showing any incredulity over any of these accusations. They're just letting it go. And my theory is, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. All right. Thanks for calling in. Uh, Patty, appreciate it. Maggie in Mississippi, also on WBUV. What's going on, Maggie? Hey, Buck. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank uh, you for calling hey. in. Shields high. Shields high. So I got a movie quote for you. All but right. it's a series of quotes. It's a scene, technically, but it's a short scene. Okay. Um. So it goes like this. Um, would somebody please shoot this guy? What does it look like we're doing? Missing. Uh, I don't know. You got me. What is that? Marine, 2006, uh, starring John Cena. Oh, okay. I've actually never seen it. Is it good? It's a very good movie. It's one of the WWE Studios movies. Huh. Okay. You know, I met a guy who's running for, I think he's a WWE guy who's absolutely enormous, by the way. I mean, even by wrestler standards, he was in the green room at Fox when I was over there once. I think he might, yeah, do you know what I'm talking about? He's uh, he's running for office, I think, or he was in, in Tennessee, and he's a WWE star. He's huge. Absolutely enormous for WWE. That would be either Big Show or Mark Henry. I don't know. Um, I don't know who the guy. Anyway, I'll look. Is, is there a guy in the W? Kane? Is there a guy named Kane? Yes. Kane, That's who it was. Um, he he was known as he was also known as the brother of Undertaker as one of his stage names. Oh, he's like six um, ten. He was like the biggest guy I've ever seen. He was very nice, very friendly gentleman. Uh, but all right, Maggie. There's, there's, there's one bigger than him. <laughs> oh well, I believe it. Uh, thanks for calling in, Maggie. I appreciate it. Shields high. Um, I, I got to talk to you about the uh, Senate Judiciary and uh, Loretta Lynch and where that's going to go. Plus, there's, I don't know, there's the Johnny Depp thing. Do we really, Johnny Depp's an idiot. He said he's sorry. He's an idiot. Um, you know, I thought he was in, probably an idiot beforehand. Why do we listen to actors about anything? I, I just don't understand why. We, we conflate celebrity with wisdom so much in this country, and it's such an obviously... Uh, flawed formula you know if i'm trying to figure out where to get 
I don't know, hair care products, like maybe I would listen to Kim Kardashian or something. But I, I don't really care who these people say I should vote for for president. Um, anyway, I don't know. I'm probably just offended some Kardashian fans out there. Actually, my girlfriend's going to yell at me. She's She thinks I shouldn't, I shouldn't speak badly of the Kardashians. All right, I'm going to hit a break. We'll be right back. Time before this happened, and here we are now. The Senate Judiciary Committee has opened a probe into uh, the conduct of former Attorney General Loretta Lynch and her efforts to shape the FBI's investigation into 2016 Democrat presidential nominee Hillary Clinton. Uh, That has been announced today. Uh Uh-huh. By the way, I am, I am uh, convinced that if if they stay on this, they will find themselves in a very interesting place where uh, Loretta Lynch was clearly trying to uh, help out Hillary. And wouldn't, by the way, just think about this for a moment. Wouldn't it be a surprise if she wasn't trying to help out Hillary? Keep in mind the perception. Was that Hillary? You have you you can't do this hindsight thing, you know, like the Washington Washington Post today with the Obama. Oh gosh, he should have done more. Well, he didn't do more because he thought Hillary's going to win, and that was more important than the Russia intrusion. That was more important than the hacking or whatever. Um, with Loretta Lynch, she thought she would be she her her assumption would have been play the odds, everybody. Her assumption would have been that she was helping the soon-to-be-president-of-the-United-States out. That's the kind of dynamic that would push a lot of people, a lot of folks, I think, would be um, tempted, if not feel compelled for partisan reasons, but would at least feel tempted to try to cozy up to the incoming administration. Right. I mean, that's when you put it in that context, you're the attorney general. You have the ability to to do a solid for the person who is within within months of becoming the president of the United States. Who could keep you on as attorney general, by the way, or 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 make you secretary of state or, you know, do any number of things. And also will just, you know, you'll be part of the of the connected power structure of the Democratic Party at the very top. That is a seductive proposition for a lot of bureaucrats. And the moment you have a partisan, ideologically aligned bureaucrat in a position like Loretta Lynch, of course, of course she was doing what she could to help Hillary Clinton. We'll just, I mean, it's already been said by Comey, right? We, we already know. And Comey said in that testimony, it was very important. He said there are other things quote, which I cannot talk about yet, end quote, that make him uh, worry, that made him worried about Lynch's impartiality in that whole situation. So that could be, this is going to be very interesting. You know, the, the weaponization of the law for partisan ends is a destructive and, uh, and, and deeply negative thing for the country. 
But Democrats have just been on this thing and will not stop and will not give it up and don't care about what it's doing to the country, to the administration, to our trust in our institutions, to the electoral process. They don't care, right? They, they, will, they will burn the House down around them if they have to on this one. But because they've been so focused on this and because they've had such tunnel vision with Trump, Russia, collusion, obstruction, let's get them. Let's use the legal, let's use the legal process to get them. Let's not have any sense of fair play, any sense of decency and patriotism. And no, no, no. Let's just be complete partisan zealots. And now it's okay if you're going to play that game. Let's go back and look at Hillary's conduct. Let's look at Loretta Lynch's conduct surrounding Hillary's conduct. I think we're going to find out a lot more. And I think the Democrats have much more to hide on that front than anything that any Trump campaign aide. Oh, by the way, I, I said yesterday that uh, just wait, you know, on Monday we'll have, there'll be a Manafort story. I, I said that offhand yesterday if you go back and listen to the podcast. Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes, by the way. Please do subscribe for those of you listening. Even if you listen live, please subscribe anyway. Uh, in case you missed something or you want to share it with a friend. But I said, yeah, there'll probably be a Manafort story on Monday. Nope, Manafort story today. Washington Post, front cover. You know, blah, blah, blah. I'm looking into Manafort's shady ties. I'm just like, yeah, of course, right? Because it's, it's been a few days. Because it's been a few days. Um, anyway. Oh, one other thing. Uh, these the rumors. This is a, a a bit of a digression here, but we've got a lot more coming up in the next hour with uh, David French, uh, Inez Felcher. We're going to talk about uh, the Washington Post, Washington Post article. Inez has a topic that might get some very interesting audience response. She wants to talk to you all about. She's from the Federalist, uh, and then I'm going to talk to you about Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War. Uh, White splaining is now also apparently a thing. We've got a lot of other things to talk about. Uh, but Kennedy's looming retirement from the Supreme Court, just just file that one away for now. Just keep that in mind, because that will be the political equivalent of the Peloponnesian War in this country. The left will go crazy when a Supreme Court seat opens up. We'll be right back. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. I am not entertained! The Buck is back. Welcome back, everybody. We've got David French on the line, senior writer for National Review. He's an attorney and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Mr. French, great to have you, sir. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I would say it's French Friday, but then I feel like everybody would expect me to play the Marseillaise or something in the background. But it's a different kind of French. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Um, we want to talk to you for the Washington Post article today. That was the at least in the morning. Everybody was all fired up about that. Uh, it seemed to me that one of the, the big takeaways, other than why is the Washington Post writing about some of the stuff that it chooses to write about, uh, is that Obama was not as concerned because he thought Hillary was going to win. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that, that everyone has known that for a while, is that, that the, you know one of the reasons why Obama didn't make any stern statements is he didn't want to rock the boat. He thought it was all going to be moot soon, uh, oh, Hillary was going to win, and, you know, then business would proceed as usual. But I'll tell you the thing that really stood out to me 
was the disparity between the apocalyptic language and description of of the Russian attack on the system with the just kind of tiny and pitiful response that the Obama administration made. I mean, it was almost like they were speaking about it in terms like the Russians had put missiles just south of the Rio Grande. And then what they do is they respond with the kind of retaliation that's just common in like petty international diplomatic disputes. Well, it's it's, bizarre. It seems to me like the analysis is being enhanced after the fact because there's a, yeah, because there's a very clear political uh, reason for that. And we all know what it is. They want to say that the uh, election was uh, was dishonest. It was illegitimate. And Trump really shouldn't be the president. Uh, But, you know, if you're the commander in chief, your concern is actually not supposed to be who the next commander in chief is going to be when it comes to national security issues. And if Russia was engaged in what The Washington Post says it was engaged in on the scale it was engaged in it, I believe a quote from the article, if memory serves, is it was the political crime of the century, the Washington Post writes. But if all of that's going on, you're the commander in chief. You have to take action right away. I mean, that's on Obama. I think that's one of the yeah. that's, again, one of the big conclusions I took away from this. He chose not to do more. Well, and, and you saw the reason why in the article. I thought there was a very insightful couple of paragraphs that said, well, his foreign policy philosophy was essentially don't make things worse. And what and what that meant was Putin could Putin could make things worse, but we just couldn't really fight back strong enough or hard enough to to uh, in any way, according to Obama, sort of uh, uh, ratchet up the tensions, which is a very bizarre way to do foreign policy because it gives your it gives your foes the initiative every single time. But again, I, I really objected as I read it to the crime of the century language because. Crime of the century would implies that the Russian efforts in our election, which did exist, which were wrong, which were which America should respond to, that they were somehow dispositive to the outcome. Um, no, 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 no. They were not dispositive to the outcome. Uh, they they were an aggressive act against the United States. They were something that we should respond to. But calling it the crime of the century implies that Putin impacted the outcome of the election. And I, there's just no evidence for that. And that's one thing. And I think that's where you raise a good point that the article is obviously written from a post-election standpoint of people trying to figure out how Hillary, uh, how Hillary lost and once again sort of going back to the Russia well. Right. I mean, if this were true, political uh, you know, political consultants should all figure out what magic the Russians have where they can, from afar, in a foreign country, yeah, I know using the Internet, but but they can uh, subvert and overcome a multi-billion dollar media apparatus in this country, a multi-billion dollar campaign effort from both sides. I mean, you know, at, at some point, people just need to stop drinking the, drinking the crazy juice on this. Yeah, I mean— <laughs> You know, what what Russia actually did was hack some very vulnerable email systems, leak a few embarrassing emails into the public domain, and boost some misleading news stories or false news stories on social media. I mean, compared to the avalanche, the avalanche of news coverage and scandals and controversies in this election, that kind of stuff is background noise. It's like a gnat buzzing around you while you're out for a run. It is not 
uh, it is not hacking the election. Yeah, and those. to take it from the from the Putin point of view, by the way, when you have the most powerful politicians in the United States regularly referring to the head of state in Russia as as a thug, as a kleptocrat, as a you know, one could suggest that that may be affecting their future elections too. I mean, at some point. Cool. You could take this to some pretty crazy lengths if you're just going to say, well, if, if, if an outside entity is in any way trying to affect or mold perception in a foreign country, they've intervened, they've they've uh, meddled in the election. It's like everybody's at some level meddling. I mean, you know, the, the, the Internet oh, is global. I mean, so is our media. Look, uh, we we have tried to influence elections and changes of government overseas. Look, I, I proudly hold to a double standard on this. My view is that the United States government should do what is necessary to advance American interests, if that including uh, influencing the outcomes of, of regime change overseas. At the same time, I believe the American government should protect our country from similar kinds of influence. So uh, I, if there's going to be any influence, I want it to be a one-way street. I mean, I, I, and I don't, I don't think there's anything I think that's, you know, p- patriotic citizens of multiple countries would say that. I, I sign uh, on to your double standard there, and I like that you're putting it right, right, you know, first and foremost, because I agree, because I think there should be a double standard because America is different and we're number one. We're speaking to David French, everybody. <laughs> he is a senior writer for National Review. Check out his stuff at nationalreview.com. David, I was asking earlier in this week, I'm not going to say that the Republicans were listening to me when they went with this because it's so obvious that this should happen, but here we are now. I was asking the question, well, if we're going to have a special Council, and if it's going to be looking into Comey and election meddling and all this other stuff, I think it also has to look at the Loretta Lynch angle to this and the special counsel we're hearing today uh, may be looking at that, but we know that the Congress is going to be looking at that. Yeah, you know, it's it's not the case that all inquiry and interest in a in a presidential administration ceases when that administration ceases. Uh, That the conduct of the Obama administration in so many ways, especially the the Obama DOJ, was just abominable. And, you know, the way in which Loretta Lynch seemed to put her thumb on the scales of the Hillary Clinton email investigation, which was an actual criminal investigation uh, of of an American citizen and the kind of proceeding uh, that obstruction of justice statutes contemplate, the the investigation of the Department of Justice conduct in that affair, I think, is entirely – appropriate. And, and given some of um, Director Comey's allegations, I'm not talking about impaneling a grand jury, but at the very least, let's have some congressional accountability here because, you know, that level of influence uh, is is deeply troubling, especially when you're talking about a, an attorney general putting their thumb on the scales on influencing who could possibly be the next president of the United States by inhibiting discussion of a criminal affair, of a, of a criminal investigation. I mean, this is, this is very, very serious, and if somebody doesn't have to choose, well, either look at Lynch or look at Trump, uh, you can look at both. It's possible. I just want to ask you also about your piece, American Weakness and Incompetence are Vladimir Putin's Greatest Assets. That's a, a piece you wrote. How so? Well, you know, it's amazing. If you look at, if you look at the, the Vladimir Putin winning streak, uh, that he was on in his direct confrontations with the United States. Uh, again and again, you had the Obama administration that was uh, downplaying the threat, uh, ultimately leading to the kinds of things that we hadn't seen in a very long time in this world, like a, an invasion of a, of, of a European country as, as uh, Russia invaded and annexed the Crimea and has boots on the ground in parts of southeastern Ukraine. 
We saw dis- decisive Russian military intervention in Syria. And these were not – this was not uh, Russia using overwhelming force and, and possessing overwhelming international economic and diplomatic power. It was just uh, it was just Putin understanding that he could get away with it because Obama was going to let him get away with it. And then when it came to Hillary Clinton, you know, if, if Putin did want to influence and if Putin did want to try to put his thumb on the scales, was there a softer target than Hillary Clinton, one of the most corrupt politicians ever to run for a higher office? And then, you know, it's just a reality that Trump, even though there's no allegation of collusion, I mean, no, there's no evidence of collusion at all, has responded in so many ways to the Russian – in so many ways that shoots himself in the foot in this Russian investigation that I'm beginning to look at it and I'm thinking, can anyone here act like an adult? Um, It's as if Putin, with minimal effort and minimal military economic – outlay and minimal outlay of intelligence resources has been able to wreak maximum havoc in the American body politic because nobody knows how to respond to him. No, he's been he's been oh, I mean, he's been been outplaying his his hand from a geostrategic and Russian interest yeah. perspective, certainly outside his borders. I mean, w- would you agree with that? I mean, that's I think that's oh, pretty clear. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we're still uh, those of us who are older, sometimes still trapped in a mindset of the U.S. Soviet race where the Soviet Union was this immense, colossal military force, this immense force that controlled huge sections of the Earth's territory, either directly or indirectly. Now, Russia, by GDP, by military strength, is really is not in our same class. It's just not. And yet, again and again, Russia has been able to achieve its geostrategic goals, and we have not, in part because uh, Putin understands who he's facing, and he's just audacious enough to get away with what he wants to get away with because he knows that our tolerance for risk is so uh, – we have such a low tolerance for risk that he's, he can get away with uh, pursuing his, his agenda while the Obama administration's view was, well, I just don't want to screw up. I just don't want to screw up. I just don't want to screw up, and he took advantage of that time and again. David French is a senior writer for National Review. Check out his latest at nationalreview.com and follow him, David A. French, on Twitter. David, have a great weekend. Thanks for making the time. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, team, our sponsor this hour is Simply Safe. Home security is critical. We all know that. We all understand that a home security system can give you peace of mind, especially when you're away from your home, because that's during the day when there are a lot of burglaries, a lot of break-ins that happen. So you want a system that is interactive, that is simple to set up, and that is straightforward. Simply Safe Home Security is your answer. It's a completely wireless system. You can install this yourself in under an hour. It gives you entry sensors, glass break sensors, and a high-definition security camera so you'll know what's going on at your home when you're away. There are no long-term contracts, by the way, and Simply Safe's round-the-clock professional monitoring is only $14.99 a month. So go to simplysafe.com slash buck, get a special 10% discount off your home security system when you order today. That's simplysafe.com slash buck for 10% off. Simplysafe.com slash buck. Check it out. Team, we're going to hit a quick break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Stay with me. Why is the White House reading Greek history? That's the question that was asked earlier in the week in Politico. Uh, The real question is, why are the top advisors 
of the Trump administration uh, sitting around thinking about and discussing an ancient Greek historian named Thucydides, who wrote a seminal work about the Peloponnesian War. Now, this is not new, that this uh, historical work, which is one of the most important uh, tracts of military history ever written, uh, it is taught frequently in international relations programs. Uh, It is assigned reading at the U.S. uh, Army War College. Uh, Thucydides is one of those voices from the past that is often brought forward to uh, elucidate the challenges of the present. And as you know, I I am fond of ancient Greek history and and wish I could even spend much more time both reading and studying it and then sharing it with you on the show than I'm able to at this point. But maybe one day in the future, there will be more uh, fulsome deep dives on the subject. But the White House right now is concerned with the Peloponnesian War. And I wanted to give you some background on it and then talk about what the lessons are that they may be uh, trying to draw from it, or at least looking at the challenges and understanding uh, the historical impulses that pushed the leadership in uh, 5th century BC uh, Greece, ancient Greece, to make decisions that I think a lot of people today would see and and draw parallels to any number of U.S. conflicts in the recent past and just the realities of warfare. So the the Peloponnesian War is not uh, as well known as, say, the war against, and outside of academic and and military circles, as, say, the war against uh, Persian invaders because of movies like 300 and King Leonidas and the 300 Spartans at the hot gates, the pass of Thermopylae, there are some pop culture references to other ancient Greek conflicts. Uh, The movie uh, with Alexander the Great, which as I understand it, uh, and Colin Farrell starring as Alexander, was not particularly good. Um, But you haven't seen a major theatrical production of the Peloponnesian War, and I think that it would actually be a a phenomenal subject uh, for such... uh, for such a Hollywood treatment, because if you made this into a miniseries, people would see the very uh, clear parallels to many of the problems we face uh, today. And they're problems that are timeless, really. You've faced them all throughout history in matters of war and politics and, and the realities therein. So the Peloponnesian War is, as I said, 5th century Athens, and it stretches on for 27 years, from 431 to 404 B.C. So this is cross-generational. It goes on for decades, and it pitted uh, two mighty states, the mightiest states of ancient Greece, the most famous ones, Athens and Sparta, against each other in what became a death struggle, and it ended with Sparta uh, besieging Athens, the city-state of Athens, and uh, breaking it off from its sea route as well, destroying the long walls, which were barriers created between the city-state of Athens and its port of Piraeus, which was a couple of miles away, and Athens was never the same really after this. So it, it started out as a conflict that would have been similar to many others. In ancient Greece, uh, hoplite warfare which was only engaged in by citizens of the city-state who could afford uh, 
the armor, the breastplate, the shield. In fact, the shield known as a hoplon is where we get the term hoplite from. Hoplites were heavy armored infantry, and that's what we generally think of. Uh, shields locked, interconnected, and uh, hoplites holding a spear uh, and also having a, a short sword for thrusting. Um, but this conflict between Sparta and Athens had been building for some time, and it quickly spiraled out of control. And to really understand why people draw parallels between Athens and modern America, for example, and its fight with Sparta, uh, which has been viewed in the context of a Cold War paradigm, where Sparta, it's a land, it was a landlocked power of militarism, and oppression, in fact, the Spartans relied on a vast army of slaves, uh, of helots, to do the, the farm work and, and, and to support this professional standing army uh, in Sparta. And to become a member of that army, you had to go through an incredibly rigorous school that started in adolescence called the Agoge. Uh, so it's almost like basic underwater demolition school for the Navy SEALs, you know, BUDS. But it's buds that you would start uh, when you were a teenager and you never really got out of it. Uh, that Sparta has been viewed in the context of trying to find a, a historical analogy to today as a Cold War enemy of Athens, or rather as a, a Cold War uh, parallel between Athens and Sparta with Athens as the United States and Sparta as the Soviet Union, uh, major land power. Uh, oppression, totalitarian. Athens, of course, with a population, a city-state population that was uh, in, in, only really in, in the same uh, hun hundreds of thousands, you'd say. And, and the entirety of the Greek peninsula, it should be noted, is the size of a mid-sized U.S. state. So this conflict was playing out predominantly on what is a, a pretty small landmass, although Athens was also overseeing a vast empire at the time. It had city-states that paid tribute to it. It was a naval power, again, bring us back to the Cold War U.S. versus Soviet paradigm, and it had uh, really vassal states that it could call upon uh, from all across the Mediterranean. So what were two city-states that weren't really that large squaring off against each other also brought in uh, much of the ancient world through a battle that went on for decades. The Peloponnesian War, of course, is named for the Peloponnese, uh, which is a peninsula separated from the rest of mainland Greece by the Gulf of Corinth. Those of you who are longtime uh, members of Team Buck know the Gulf of Corinth is the scene of the great Battle of Lepanto between the allied Ottoman forces and those of Christian Europe in 1571, an enormous naval battle that we will have to revisit this fall on its anniversary. Um, but I digress. So the Peloponnese was the peninsula uh, where you could find the ancient cities of Sparta, Argos, and Corinth, among others. And that's part of what we don't get in most of our reading of, about ancient Greece is that there were other major city-states, Corinth, Thebes, that played a, a role in uh, not just the battle or the, the Peloponnesian War, um, but in ancient Greece's growth and in the major, the major battles, including against the invading Persian hordes. 
Um, but without without question, the two major uh, city states at the time were Sparta and Athens. So you had two great powers of the period, including Athens in all of its splendor, with its art, its uh, its culture, its democracy, which of course didn't mean everybody got to vote; it just meant citizens, which was a very uh, a small percentage of the overall population were allowed to vote. But ancient Athens, which is the cradle of Western civilization, was squaring off against Sparta, a militaristic, totalitarian, really, society, certainly authoritarian, uh, in what didn't seem like it would be all that different from previous fights. There would be uh, city-states would fight, and, and it would be over the allegiance of another city-state or uh, a relatively uh, short-term and... Uh, minor in the historical scope grievance but the Peloponnesian War and by the way it's thought of as the Athenian War by others in it and Thucydides who's not just a great historian but was a general in this war was in Athens during one of the plagues so you're when you talk about Thucydides and I think one of the reasons why he has so much respect as a historian among military men of today and and, and honestly for many centuries uh, is that and he was read by he's read by all the great military theorists and historians is because he was a practitioner as well as a great writer and historian. He was a general who squared off against the Spartans. Uh, he knew this warfare firsthand. He was there. He lived it. He was a part of it. So you get a very particular view from Thucydides. And I highly recommend if you are looking for uh, gripping reading that you know is written in historical narrative form but is is true and is accurate uh just pick up the Peloponnesian War but i think when you look at the uh the historians and why they try to draw from this for today and back to our article about why the Trump White House is having meetings according to this Politico piece uh where they discuss just the history of ancient Greece think about this and they have the top military and national security minds in this administration are readers of Thucydides, are uh, history buffs when it comes to ancient Greece, is because they, they see the, uh, this, this great power conflict of the time. There are similar dynamics, and in this case it may be that the dynamic is between the U.S. and China. In the past, people had said it was between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and looking for similarities and points of comparison. One part of the Peloponnesian War that is uh, so compelling, both as reading and as a means of understanding uh, how war and the politics around it really functions and operates, is that it became quickly a total war. It became a war of annihilation, of extermination of cities, of sieges that ended with the massacre of all inhabitants. This had not been the standard operating procedure on the Greek peninsula in the 5th century BC, but this war quickly accelerated and it became not just a limited conflict between uh, a Spartan military that besieged Athens for a period of time. Because remember, they were, these soldiers were on a season that had to do with the harvest. There was a limited campaigning season, and so usually conflicts uh, were limited in scope. This became a total war on the peninsula and across the Mediterranean. It even involved an expedition to Syracuse in Sicily that was disastrous for the Athenians. It stretched on 
for years and years. You had, during this period, Pericles, the most famous of all ancient Greek Athenian leaders, give his funeral oration, one of the most famous speeches in uh, all history. And when you see how the decisions were made at the time, uh, there was passion, there was patriotism, there were fears about the annihilation, not just of a, a military force, but of the people back home if the military was unsuccessful. Uh, there was treachery, there was backstabbing, there was betrayal by different allies. All of these different factors were brought together in a conflict that was entirely among people who spoke the same language, roughly speaking, had the same culture, uh, and you'd think would be able to settle their differences uh, in a way that would have been much more amenable and much more positive for both sides. But the Peloponnesian War is really, in the 5th century B.C., again, 27 years from 431 to 404 B.C., would be better described as the Great Greek Civil War. And it was, as I said, a war that turned into a total war, war of annihilation and extermination. And uh, that's why people also look at how did this happen? How did we get, how did they get to that point? And then look for lessons for today. In the context of the U.S.-China relationship, it's, uh, I think, a stretch to find all that much of, of a comparison right now because of um, many of the economic ties that we have between the U.S. and China, the distance between the two countries. Uh, but people would say in the Peloponnesian War, you had battles waged far afield from Spartan and uh, from Sparta and Athens that were proxy battles, proxy wars. Well, there certainly could be similar situations between the U.S. and China going into the future. But uh, the Peloponnesian War is a if you're interested in ancient Greece at all, it is essential. It is must reading uh, and that the White House is thinking about this, is talking to historians about it, and looking at it as a place for wisdom and perhaps even some answers as to long-term U.S. foreign policy trajectory, uh, I think they're looking for wisdom in a, in a smart place. I think that this is a, a worthwhile endeavor for them, uh, and I'm glad that I was able to give you a little bit of uh, why the Peloponnesian War is of such interest and why Thucydides, the uh, ancient Greek historian, makes for such compelling reading. By the way, if you want a more recent version of this, uh, A War Like No Other by Victor Davis Hanson is a fantastic book, and I highly recommend it. We will hit a quick break here, team. We'll be right back. Kids aren't working over the summer like they used to. Associated Press crunched the numbers today. In 1986... 57% of Americans aged 16 to 19 were employed. The proportion stayed over 50% until 2002 when it began dropping steadily. By last July, only 36% were working. I mean, I'm in favor of the job for a wage formulation. I think we've been pushed into this society now where you get so many people um, who are supposed to do these unpaid internships. I think unpaid internships are overwhelmingly a scam. I think that uh, you don't get what you think you're going to get out of it. I think that for a lot of people, the unpaid internship is just an excuse for the company to get free clerical labor. 
and and I do look. There's there's exploitation that goes on with this stuff. There's no question about it in my mind. Whereas when you show up somewhere and you have to do a job and you see what the paycheck is for that job, and if you don't show up, you're going to get fired. That's an essential life lesson. Um, I worked. I remember as a as a summer camp counselor for obviously very little money. Uh, I had tutored when I was in high school to make a little extra money on the weekends. You know, you do. So I, I had worked at a couple parties at a at as a as a caterer a few times. I mean, you know, these are the jobs that you do, and you have to deal with people. You have to be there on time, and you at the end get money, and you're like, wow, this is the money that I have. I could spend this on lunch pretty easily, and this took me two or three hours to earn. So it's it's a really valuable lesson. I mean, I think the summer job, especially when you're high school aged, is is a great thing to have. Uh, and I think I would recommend that people get them and uh, stay away from this. Oh, let's go to math camp or something. Well, you, you do enough studying nine months of the year. I know so many people now that they're, oh, I'm going to go to like an SAT program over the summer. Look, I mean, do whatever you want. But I think that the I, I wish that I had learned even sooner and even harder uh, what work and labor and pay really meant. Uh, and I learned it. But man, when I got out of when I, it wasn't until I got out of college. It's like find an apartment and pay for your groceries. And here's how much money you have every two weeks to do it. It's like, whoa, this whole adult thing is less fun than I thought it would be. So anyway, summer jobs are not at the same level they used to be. And I think that's a shame because everybody should, you know, I don't know, the newspaper route, scoop ice cream, work as a server, work as a host or a hostess or whatever. It's great experience over the summer and you appreciate your free time even more. All right, we're going to hit a quick break, team. I'll be right back. Buck is back. Hey, everybody, Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. We're number one, all right? America is number one. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Uh, The media loves to play this game. And I just found this to be kind of a, a fun or funny instance of it this week. It's, in a sense, clickbait, right? Because anytime you see America is now a second-tier country in the headline, this was in a Bloomberg piece earlier in the week, anytime you see that, you're going to get, on the left, Democrats, liberals, tearing down America is like their national pastime. If they can find a way to criticize America, if they can find a way to uh, show how they know how America could be better or could meet its true ideals or, you know, whatever. Uh, They love that. I always have thought that there are two kinds of Americans, roughly speaking, those who take tremendous pride in being American and those who take pride in thinking that they're better than America. And those who fall into the latter category are Democrats uh, or at least leftists. Some Democrats I know are very patriotic and everything. I'm looking, it's a radio show. I'm having a little fun, everybody. It's a Friday. Let's not get too crazy. Um, but this piece that America is a second tier country, which ran on Bloomberg, was was pretty funny. Because first of all, when you, you think to yourself, okay, well, how does anyone even make this comparison? How do we even get to a, a point 
where there's a, uh, a a way to assess the data. How do you crunch the numbers on whether America is a second tier country? And that's when you find out that it's according to the social progress imperative, a U.S. a U.S. based nonprofit. Okay, first of all, anything that's called the social progress imperative sounds like it's the kind of organization that wants to imprison people for climate change denial or something, right? It sounds like an organization that, when it's not crunching the numbers on whether America is a great country, might be suggesting that if you don't use the proper pronoun for somebody who is on the transgender spectrum somewhere, you should be fined and or imprisoned. I'm just talking about the name. I don't know what the social progress imperative does, but to me it sounds a little scary, right? This would be this would be a little too clearly leftist uh, for my taste because those are key words: social progress. I mean, th- these are terms that have a certain connotation to those of us who pay attention when they're used in the title of an organization of a nonprofit. So what they did is they ranked fifty countries based on metrics uh, that have to do with overall well-being and. Uh, they they look at this and and here are here's the breakdown, uh, and of course Scandinavia walks away with the top four of 128 slots, right? So they gave a score out for 2017 to these to the top 20 countries, and it's number one Denmark, number two Finland, three Iceland, then Norway, Switzerland, Canada, the Netherlands, Sweden, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, the UK, Germany, Austria, Belgium, Japan. Uh, Spain, Japan, U.S., France, Portugal. So we're just barely in the top 20. Um, I, first of all, the the liberal left's obsession with Scandinavian countries, I always find so interesting because uh, multiculturalism is a very new phenomenon, uh, really, in those countries. They, they do not have long uh, histories. It's certainly not in the pre-World War II era. They don't, they don't have many decades and and pre uh, post and pre World War II era they don't have many many decades of uh, disparate immigrants coming from all over the world right that's an that's a really distinctly American phenomenon in the 19th and 20th century uh, so they're they're pointing to a culture they're pointing to countries that are culturally speaking uh, monolithic and in which there's very little uh, different until recently and of course as we know, from looking at what's going on in these countries in recent years, uh, they're having some problems with their incredibly open-minded, tolerant, multiculturalist, really cultural relativism dressed up as multiculturalism. Uh, There are questions about this. And I should also note there are questions about the sustainability even of their economic model which is not socialist. People always bring this stuff out there. Oh, look at the socialist countries of Scandinavia. No. Socialism, just to review, is government control of both the means and distribution of production. The government controls the factories. The government decides who gets what or what the prices are for what that are made by the government factories. The government also decides how much property you can have, either through taxation or otherwise, and redistributes to all the rest. I mean, we do have some in this country, some programs that are certainly based upon socialist uh, tendencies or ideology, but we're not a socialist country. Neither are the Scandinavian countries. Uh, In fact, they've been increasingly 
privatizing. And when you look at uh, recent recent years, recent decades in Scandinavia, they're actually more commercially and economically competitive on some fronts than we are, right? Lower tax rates, and they, they have been pushing for more private enterprise. Uh, but on the cultural side, I think that's where it's most fascinating that these uh, that these countries come up on this list. And I suppose the reason that um, a, a U.S.-based think tank wants to show us this is in part that there are other countries that are doing things better, where people are are happier than we are. Uh, so, you know, and look, whether you even believe that these metrics are worthwhile or not, let's just put that aside for a second. Uh, but you take a country, for example, like Finland. Finland uh, is a is a is a monolithic culture. Finland is a place where there's a tremendous amount of of similarity, ethnic and linguistic and uh, religious similarity between the inhabitants. Same thing is true of Iceland and Norway. Uh, try and become a Swiss citizen and let me know how that goes for you. Uh, it is only in recent, as I said, recent decades that the Netherlands and Sweden and, and, and uh, Denmark have been opening up their doors to uh, immigrants, particularly uh, refugees and asylees. Um, and that has brought with it some consequences that those societies are really still coming to grips with. It's not quite as simple and straightforward as they thought it would be. And also, I mean, to put some of these smaller countries on the list, another favorite thing to do of the left is to find a small European country with a, a, with a tremendous amount of uh, homogeneity among its people and then say, see how well they're doing, see how happy they are. And you go, well, what are the lessons we're supposed to take from that? Uh, first of all, making a government function pretty well at the level of a country like Belgium, which is the size of a, you know, a, a, a bottom third U.S. state in terms of its overall population, right? I mean, B- Belgium is not that big. And in terms of its actual physical size, it's not very big at all. It would be like, yeah, it's like saying, yeah, you know, what, what do we, how do we make a place as much of a paradise in terms of how its government functions as, uh, I don't know, Massachusetts or New Jersey, right? I know, New Jersey, a paradise. Who knew? Um, it's only when you get further down the list that you get into Germany, Japan, and France. And the U.S. is, all, is pretty close to all those countries on this metric of, of overall happiness. Um, but, you know, I think one other part of this that never really gets discussed by the left, and I'm reminded of uh, the writings of H.L. Uh, Mencken, the most well-known, I think, writer from, uh, from, the, Baltimore, for, from the Baltimore Sun, uh, but back in the early 20th century. Uh, but he always, or he wrote that the, the defining character, characteristic of the American experience, we think it's patriotism and liberty, and he had, he had some mocking words for that that are a little harsh. Mencken, was, Mencken is fascinating, but sometimes you got to take it with a grain of salt. Uh, but he, and there's some other stuff he said, you'll be like, whoa. Uh, but Mencken is, um, you know, look, he was a product of his time. He said that class anxiety, though, is the defining characteristic 
uh, the defining characteristic of the American experience, and that our greatest fear is that we will be, find ourselves in a lower class than we had previously been. And it is that constant struggle to be better and that constant sense of upward mobility that I think can sometimes be one of the differences between our perceptions of happiness and whether our people are complacent in this country and what you'll see in other in other countries, right? I mean, sit down and speak to someone who's a Dane. Sit down and speak to somebody from the Netherlands. They're not all trying to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. They're not all trying to be the next Kanye. They're not all trying to be the next, you know, n- name a superstar. You know, they kind of just want to go to university and they want to do their thing and maybe they want to get married or maybe they want to have a non-denominational partnership ceremony in the secular European tradition where they will share a home and at some point perhaps adopt children. But whatever the case may be, uh, they're not trying to be uh, heroes. They're not trying to be superstars. They're not trying to be big winners necessarily in what they do. And that's a, that's a more specifically American, widespread American concept. Whether you know, you're just trying to be the best auto body shop owner in your town, or you're trying to be the next big, you know, internet billionaire. Americans are a competitive bunch, and that's a good thing um, in many ways for us. And but it also means that I think it affects our general perceptions of happiness because because in a competitive society, yes, there are going to be gains that are made for all of us, right? Technological and commercial and otherwise. But there are also going to be a lot of people who don't get what they want. There are going to be people who feel like they weren't lucky enough or they missed out. And I think that's one aspect of the American experience that really directly affects uh, a lot of these surveys and, and all this uh, breaking down of how, how happy we are and how well off we are. I mean, this piece in Bloomberg is nonsense that we're a second tier country uh, and that 17 others are ahead of us when it comes to well-being. I mean, they break down all these different, you know, healthcare access and school and all that. Um, but in America, y- y- you get to be in the fight in your own way. And that's a, a beautiful thing, and we embrace it. But it also means that we don't all get to just sit around and think that everything is fine. So there you go. All right, team, uh, I'm going to talk to you about a bunch of stuff. Stay with me. Then again, I think it's only fair that I tell you what that bunch of stuff is if you're going to hang out with me for the uh, final hour here, which I appreciate uh, if you would. So uh, we're going to get into a new phenomenon called white splaining here in a second. You've heard of mansplaining. I'll talk to you about white splaining and also how a toy company is getting rid of gender for its various toy divisions. We'll also discuss a group called Sleeping Giants that is engaged in online shaming for the purposes of digital boycotts against companies that, of course, offend the progressive orthodoxy and offend leftist sensibilities. So far, they've had much more success than I think a lot of people realize. Uh, So I'll be getting into Sleeping Giants and other efforts to boycott conservative speech by attacking online advertisers. And then finally, we'll talk a bit about uh, uh, the end of car ownership and if you're going to be driving anywhere this weekend i'm just trying to basically give you a heads up enjoy this whole american individual car experiment because uh that's all going to be changing because of technology we're going to hit a quick break team we'll be right back stay with me white splaining is now a thing everybody 
That's at least according to a blogger at the Huffington Post. I'm sure it will catch on from there, and a hat tip Heat Street for pointing this out, that it's not enough merely to talk about white privilege, which of course is the uh, very annoying assumption that just being white means that you're living in some better place of social acceptance and you've earned what you have less and you've done less in your life to merit the things that you have and you are, in ways that you could never even be fully aware, benefiting from this, again, white privilege. Um, but you've heard of mansplaining, right? So this is, mansplaining is when, as a man, like I, I guess I mansplain for three hours a day on radio because I'm just mansplaining left and right. Uh, but mansplaining plus white privilege, I suppose, equals, well, I guess it doesn't really because you're getting into the man part of it, but the splain and white privilege, you get white-splaining. White-splaining is a, a new phenomenon. Well, it's not new a thing, but it's a new term. Uh, it's a new description of the phenomenon of white people having opinions on things, particularly Opinions on whether or not something is racist or whether accusations of racism made by a person who is not white are legitimate. Uh, white-splaining is now something that you have to keep in mind whenever you want to have a political discussion or you want to discuss a news story or you want to just weigh in on anything with your opinion because if you're white, then clearly... Uh, you're not allowed or you're not in a position to uh, opine on the experiences of those who are not white or on their uh, impressions of racism or race in society. I should just note that if this is now how we're going to treat debate and argument, there's really no such thing as debate and argument anymore. If personal experience is not just a part of a discussion, uh, but if personal experience is now a prerequisite to engage in certain discussions, then there's really no such thing as, as free expression of political ideas anymore because you could just extend this logic to anything, right? Well, how can you have opinions? How can you have opinions on U.S. military policy if you've never served in the military? How can you have opinions on uh, Medicare if you're not 65 years or older? How can you have, you know, th this uh, expansion of identity politics into an all consuming uh, and um, all-encompassing ideology is just once again pushing things too far. But white-splaining is now, along with man-spreading and man-splaining and the patriarchy, these are all terms in the leftist lexicon with which we should become familiar. So, you know, be, be aware of the possibility of, of engaging in some white-splaining going forward, uh, even, of course, by accident, which you probably would be doing it by accident because it's not really a thing, but... I digress. Another story that uh, I just couldn't help but want to bring up on, on Heat Street here um, is that now there is a separation. Well, th there's a separation that exists in some toy companies uh, by gender. But according to this piece on Heat Street by Tom Teodorzuk, um Quote, Hasbro hadn't caved to modern sensibilities by separating its business units by gender, but suddenly the third biggest toy and board game company, whose brands include Star Wars, My Little Pony, and G.I. Joe, 
considers gender a very dirty word. Last January, Hasbro reported its revenue by type of brand rather than by boys, girls, games, preschool categories. And now its CEO claims that gender doesn't even exist. Quote, We'll look at our brands more inclusively than ever. In fact, we eliminated the old delineation of gender. Uh, and if you think about a brand, be it My Little Pony, where 30% of our global TV audience is boys, or Star Wars, uh, you're seeing people who want to be engaged in these stories. Uh, or where we are launching all female animated series. You're seeing, yeah. Um, so they're saying that they're not going to separate toys by gender anymore. I mean, I, I guess this is... You know, they can justify this with the idea that it's uh, that there's crossover and, you know, some boys watch My Little Pony and all that. And that's fine. But it does feel like a bit of caving to political correctness, doesn't it? I mean, can we just be honest about that? Um, anyway, hit a quick break here, team. I want to talk to you about a, an, an amazing and really uh, disturbing um, effort that's underway to use social media and to use the uh, ability to digitally organize and really to troll and harass companies as a means of censoring uh, right-wing and conservative sites. I'm going to talk to you about this group called um, Sleeping, uh, Sleeping Giants, uh, which has been successful already in, in hurting some conservative companies. It's just a Twitter account that, ra- that, that uh, finds different companies and makes them afraid that they're going to be targeted for right-wing craziness. And you'll, you'll see, I'll, I'll explain, but it's something you need. You definitely need to hear about this. And uh, we'll talk about that and much more coming up. Stay with me. Team Buck, I want to talk to you about a very important shadowy movement that has been gathering uh, momentum in recent months and that is changing what information you're able to see is having profound implications for the news and media and inf- and uh, information and entertainment businesses and you may not have even heard anything about it but you've definitely seen some of their handiwork whether you realize it or not I'm talking about efforts at digital boycotting. Now, the most well-known, perhaps, of these groups is called Sleeping Giants, which is just a Twitter account. But it's a Twitter account run by people, and there's not much information about them, and a lot of this is still, we're still in the process of figuring it out. It is run by people who realize that in the digital era, If you can target the advertisers, the display advertisers of different websites, you can exert tremendous pressure uh, on those sites uh, financially, perhaps even shutting them down and bankrupting them, certainly punishing them for speech that is not liked. Now, it, it used to be the case that boycotts involved you know, people letter writing campaigns, maybe take an ad out of the newspaper, you have to protest. Now it's as simple as create social, a social media account, have a following for it, and online target an individual, an entity, a group, a corporation, and bring social media pressure to bear on it. So instead of even having to get people uh, mobilized, you know, off their, off their butts and out there, 
protesting against a group or or trying to get attention for the purposes of the boycott. Boycotts have been around a long time, and boycotts are not, you know, it's you're allowed to not purchase because of whatever reason you want, right? You cannot send your dollars, and, and you should, by the way, pay attention uh, in many cases, I think, to who you are and are not supporting in their politics. Now, not necessarily when you're buying, you know, uh, applesauce or shoes, but certainly in your information and entertainment choices, I, I hope you pay attention to that. And as a conservative in media, I hope you understand that your support really does matter to the people that are trying to uh, continue on in this ideological fight, people like me, day in and day out. But the new boycotts are digital, therefore it's easier than ever before, and it's instantaneous, and it is much more effective than I think a lot of people uh, currently realize. Let me explain a little bit of how this works. How, How do we get to a place where sleeping giants is crashing Breitbart's ad revenue for Breitbart.com? Or how do we get to a place where similar efforts are uh, against advertisers? And this is not necessarily just in the digital display space, but Bill O'Reilly got pulled from Fox because of advertisers. We know this. They've tried to do the same to others. And they're exerting pressure against any number of companies for their policies and media companies for their personnel and the positions that they take, and this this can be devastating, you know, because companies that advertise don't necessarily want to be uh, dealing with the headache, even if the person that's being targeted or the media or news organization that's being targeted has done nothing wrong, has violated no community norms or standards. This is just partisan hits. This is just going after people for having ideas that are in opposition to the progressive orthodoxy. Now, just a, a moment of, of how this all works, right? So if you run a website, and it's a, it's a conservative website, um, let's say that there's, you know, uh, liberty, libertyrevolution.com. It's pro- that probably is a website, by the way. I just thought of that off the top of my head. So don't like, go to that website because that, I don't know. You know what I'm saying, though. You know, liberty 727 forever.com or something, right? I mean, just some website about liberty and you're writing conservative stuff. If you get enough, the way you you monetize that um, is you have display advertising usually. Sometimes there's native advertising too where the content, well, there'll be sponsored content or there'll be native content where the author will write or people will write a post about a sponsor um, for the site. But the most common form, and you've all seen this, is, you know, buy buy Bob's uh, discount umbrellas, right? And you'll see it, uh, you'll see a, a little pop-up on your screen or you'll see something. Uh, it's display form. It's an ad. And the way that, that you make money here, if you're a publisher, if you're a content creator, is through something called CPM, which is co- it's cost per mile is the abbreviation, but it's really the, uh, the price charge per thousand impressions. So for every thousand hits you get on a website, uh, or impressions, uh, there is a cost associated with that, right? The idea being a thousand people have seen buy Bob's discount umbrellas, and some of them will go and, and do that. Well, some companies sell their advertising revenue to these middlemen, uh, I'm sorry, sell, sell their advertising campaigns to these middlemen advertising agencies who then put the ads on a whole bunch of different websites, and the idea being that they're diversifying 
They're getting it out there in front of people. And they can do a lot of targeting, by the way. And the more you get into this, the more you realize the Big Brother stuff really does apply because they they can figure out all kinds of data based on the websites you're visiting and you know where you live. And that's how all of a sudden it's, you know, uh, check out she- Sheila's handmade jewelry two blocks from your house is appearing on your screen. You're like, what? How do they know that that's so close to me? Well, because you're looking for jewelry yesterday, because they know what town you're in, and you see how this all goes, right? So internet advertising is a fascinating and kind of eerie uh, phenomenon in its own right. Um, but the way, so CPMs is how they make money. And if you have an advertiser, um, Bob's Umbrellas, that is on a whole bunch of different sites, they may not even know. They just know that they're getting 100,000 or a million uh, views of their ad, right? Buy Bob's Umbrellas, you click here. What these companies like, uh, or not companies, rather, these efforts run by the Twitter account like Sleeping Giants, but there are uh, others who are doing this. What they do is they figure out who the advertisers are and then where those ads are going that they don't like. And they will publicly try to shame them and say, you know, hey, uh, Bob's Umbrellas, you're advertising on this right-wing site. You're advertising on Breitbart. You're advertising on the Daily Caller. You're advertising on, you know, just name a, a conservative site. And they try to spook them. They try to to scare the, uh, the advertiser into insisting that its ads get pulled from those sites. Now, this is a very effective, very targeted way of hurting the revenue of companies that are based in the content and news space. And once you add into this, that there are increasingly very few companies that really uh, do. And I, I, I had tip our friend Ben Dominich over at The Federalist for writing about the only kind of protest that works on thefederalist.com. And he addresses this issue uh, that you have Amazon and Google and these mega companies that are in charge of more and more of both the the, uh, business that's transacted online as well as, in the case of something like Google and Google Ads and Facebook, uh, they're expected to capture, as Ben writes here, 85% of new advertising and 60% of new digital spending in 2017. Well, if you can pressure Google and Facebook to uh, refuse to put ads, to, to refuse to share or, or to use their stock of ads on certain sites because they're conservative, you can crush websites out there that need revenue to survive, right? They have to pay the writers, they have to pay the developers, they have to pay people to run the back end. If you can come up with a successful social media shaming campaign uh, to go after the Googles and the Facebooks, you it's this is like the Bill O'Reilly effect, but digital, meaning they can take out anybody because once the advertising is gone, it doesn't matter how popular you are. If you're not able to monetize those views, unless you have a direct subscription business, meaning people pay you for your content directly instead of people paying you for the audience you create, for advertisers to get some exposure to. That's the traditional ad model, and it's the ad model with CPMs and such online. Um, not to be confused with cost per acquisition. That's how much it costs for you to get to get a new user or get new eyeball CPA. CPM, as I said, is per thousand eyes uh, on your ad. Uh, 
Um, but as as I, I see this playing out, you know, you have Facebook and Google increasingly doing and Twitter uh, censorship and playing the role of political police for speech, which means PC police. You have people using those same platforms, especially Facebook and Twitter, to do these social media shaming campaigns to a, a target um, political entities that they don't like, right? To target news sites and to target uh, organizations or, or individuals that are only able to make a living be, because they're able to uh, sell ad space or their sites at least are only able to stay alive because of their ability to, to be a place where inventory from these ad agencies is going. And this is all very centrally controlled. There are dominant players in the space. So, sure, right now it's maybe some of you don't mind that much or don't care. Breitbart's ad revenue is reportedly falling off a cliff because of these efforts. Um, but if they can do it to Breitbart, they can do it to anybody in the space. And if they can target advertisers and get O'Reilly thrown off air, there's no one who's safe in the conservative space. And if these digital boycott efforts catch on in such a way that they can pressure the Googles, the Facebooks, and the Twitters of the world to uh, make sure that they, one, either remove content entirely, but less, e even uh, less uh, abusive than that, just refuse to run their ad inventory for Google Ads or for Facebook on certain sites, th those sites are, are, are dead in the water. I mean, they are finished. They are done because they can't make any money. They are unsustainable enterprises. So this is speech suppression. It is very easy to do. It's already been successful on the left. And the, uh, the petty totalitarians of progressivism are leveraging digital tools for social media shaming campaigns to end free speech, quite honestly. That's what's happening. So Sleeping Giants and others, we'll talk about them in the future more. We will be right back. I know it's Friday, team, so for a good amount of you, you're probably uh, getting on the road either just to get back home or maybe you're heading out somewhere for a, a nice weekend away. Maybe you're going camping or driving to visit the in-laws, and maybe you love visiting your in-laws. I have no idea, but I'm sure you're probably preparing for uh, some fun stuff this weekend regardless, hopefully. Uh, and driving is just a part of the American cultural experience you know owning a car learning and drive a car even for me you know in new york city i think i learned to drive when i was maybe 17 uh and i was uh i had to take driver's ed i remember and uh i had this uh this dri this driving instructor who was always like buck you're doing good but you're not as good as you think you are buddy all right you're doing good but not that good stop thinking you're so good and I was always like, look, man, I mean, I've got skills behind the wheel. What, what can I say? But he's like, Buck, you're getting, no, no, no. You're not, you're not as good as you think. You're, right? you're doing good, but not that good. And I was like, what does that mean, good, but not that good? But I digress. Um, he, was, he was a born and raised New Yorker, and he always thought that uh, I was a little too, a little, a little heavy on the accelerator, maybe. Anyway, uh, but I learned how to drive here in New York City, which is great because it's like learning how to drive at an obstacle course. Uh, there's constant... Uh, unknown happening to you all the time, belligerent people on their horn behind you at all times. It's just, uh, it's learning to drive in a high-stress environment. 
but cars have been part of the American experience for a long time, and they signify independence, and uh, they signify uh, a lot of the American attitude about self-reliance, and cars are changing, though. We are entering a period where technology could, according to uh, some pieces I've read, including one recently in the Wall Street Journal called The End of Car Ownership, could mean that people are going to stop buying cars, or at least they're not going to own a car the way that they have in the past. You know, I know people that are so protective of their vehicle, they're, they're so in, invested in their vehicle that they won't let anyone else drive it, you know, and, and it's a, a prized possession and they have very strict rules, you know, no eating French fries in the back, Buck. You know, no no eating your mocha soy latte, psh, not soy, please, mocha whole milk latte in the front, Buck. Like, you know, there's there's some people that are very strict about this, uh, this stuff in their vehicles. But a major part of the sharing economy is likely to be the sharing of vehicles. Um, you may have uh, driverless cars, first of all, so that will change the whole perception of, this is something that I'm doing that's part of my autonomy and there's a skill set involved. And I know people that are very, have very big egos, even even some of my own family members uh, are, think they're exceptional drivers and they're better than other drivers, which is, is fine and good. But if you're just going to get into a vehicle like the way you get into a bus, a train or a plane right now, if you're going to get into a car and that's the way that it is, it just takes you wherever because it's all automated. Well, that will change. But also the notion of just owning a vehicle, especially if you live in a city. I mean, this will come to the cities first. Parking a car in New York, I'm sure it's true in other cities as well, is expensive. And if you're not going to take the expense on, is just an insanely stressful experience because there's all these regulations about your car on the street. and uh, So people in the cities, it, it's likely, are going to be um, sharing vehicles. People in the cities are going to be buying cars and maybe renting them out as though you're like your own personal Hertz or something, which, by the way, makes me think that the rental car companies are going to be in all kinds of trouble because once sharing, once you can Airbnb, which is a way of sharing your home, by the way, via the Internet and getting paid for it, once Airbnb for your vehicle is a commonplace thing, and it's already happening right now, uh, people will view cars as a shared investment. It will no longer be this individual ownership signal of success and who I am and my, you know, station in life or just my reliance on, on self and, you know, independence and all, all that stuff that comes along with car ownership. That's going to be fading away very quickly. So I just think that this is going to be a huge challenge for the automakers uh, these on-demand services like Uber are only going to expand and get more and more convenient. Look, I never rent a car anymore. I just use Uber when I go somewhere. Uh, and I think that I'm not alone, especially my generation. So as you're in your car this weekend, just I, I'm telling you, you're going to be telling your grandkids um, at some point, or, or maybe your kids, uh, you're going to be telling them about how you used to have to drive the vehicle yourself and you owned a car and that's all going to be going away. So enjoy if you got the top down or if you're in a pickup truck and you got the windows rolled down or you know, you're in a convertible with the, whatever. Enjoy it because this is a part of the American experience, a romantic part of the American experience. Your own vehicle, whether you're leasing it or buying it, but a vehicle that is yours, that you operate, that's 
just for you and yours to use, give it a few years, that's going to go away. So while the wind's in your hair and you're having a great weekend, I just wanted to share that with you to enjoy this time with your vehicle because it's all going to be changing in the years ahead. Team, uh, have a fantastic weekend. Looking forward to joining you, of course, next week. Uh, please share the podcast with a friend. Just tell one friend about Buck Sexton with America Now this weekend. Until next time, Shield Time.